Hello, welcome everyone. This is uh, Suha Çubukçoğlu from Turkish Heritage Organization in Washington, DC. Uh, just to briefly introduce myself, uh, I'm a non-resident fellow at the THO uh, based here in Istanbul, Turkey. And we do a monthly podcast uh, series, and this one will be on the topic of an important topic indeed on Turkey and the Middle East. Uh, joining me is a speaker from, again, Istanbul, uh, Ms. Tuğçe Çamlıca. Uh, Tuğçe is the global sales manager at Coach System for the Middle East and Africa region based in Turkey. And she joins me to discuss and uh, share her views on the region from a business and economic standpoint. Welcome, Tuğçe. Hello, Suha. Thank you for having me. Most welcome. Most welcome. It's a pleasure to have you on board <laughs> here. Um, so with that, um, let us start our discussion. And by the way, before we start, let me just um, say that this will not be um, a one-way Q&A session, but rather an informal conversation. So just uh, for the attention of our listeners, we'll both be asking and answering questions um, to cover this important topic around the recent developments in the Middle East. And just to set the context a little bit, um, we'll be discussing about the changing geopolitical landscape in the Middle East after uh, the so-called Abraham Accords and the recent reconciliation between Qatar, uh, which is Turkey's close ally, with the quartet of Saudi Arabia, UAE, Bahrain, and Egypt. And uh, our objective is first to explore the shift following the Abraham Accords and its impact on the Middle East with potential changes in policy approaches, um, you know, from the change of administration in the US, and also to uh, look at the impact on uh, business and economic links between Turkey and the Middle East, and the overall impact, of course, on US-Turkey relations. So thank you again, Tuche, for joining me today. Thank you, Suya. Uh, I would like to ask um, some questions to you, Suha. Uh, my first question is, what are these Abraham Accords that you mentioned right now? And what purpose do they serve in the context of the Middle East? Can you elaborate this topic a bit more for us? Sure. Um, great question to start with. Um, so Abraham Accords, in a nutshell, are normalization of relations between the UAE, Bahrain and Israel. As you know, UAE and Bahrain are members of the Gulf uh, Cooperation Council, a member of seven Arab states in the Gulf. Uh, and what we saw in 2020 is uh, after years of geopolitical ambitions and covert uh, trade ties uh, between these unlikely partners, that they found a common platform under an elevated form of, um, let's say, neoliberal globalization sort of uh, these trade links that's been in the background for many years have given fruit to uh, a diplomatic uh, breakthrough, uh, a warm peace, uh, so to say, quote unquote, uh, referred to as the Abraham Accords. And these are the establishment of the official diplomatic ties between Israel, Bahrain, and UAE. Um, and it's an outcome of geopolitical challenges and strategic shifts in the region. Uh, let me also add that the UAE also acted as a power broker and a mediator between uh, Saudi and Israeli governments to build this alliance, which is, uh, in my view, to become the NATO of the Middle East uh, one day. Uh, so these are the foundation stones of uh, a new alliance emerging in the Middle East. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, my second question is that with the administration change in the U.S., as we know, how do Abraham Accords affect the geopolitical landscape in the region? What do you think about that? Um, this, this breakthrough uh, really had a, a, a transformative effect on uh, the regional geopolitics. Uh, the first question I think let me ask in return is why now? Why did these countries decide to come together now? Um, the first reason is the Arab peace initiative that uh, Saudi Arabia had uh, laid out in back in two, 2002 is no longer sustainable because it's set as a precondition rec- uh, the recognition uh, or, or the sustainability of a two-state solution with Palestinians gaining an official statehood status. Um, but, uh, you know, that would mean to forego the benefits of close links with the U.S. and Israel. So over many years, I think what uh, the Gulf Arabs have come to uh, see is that, you know, Palestinian issue can be relegated to um, the recent changes in the global land, the global and the regional landscape, namely um, to, to fend up against a, a resurgent Iran. And in this picture, also Turkey takes an important place because uh, remember, you know, after um, the um, outbreak of the Arab Spring, Turkey had uh, taken a more activist role, uh, a more um, uh, aggressive foreign policy in the Middle East to uh, which to to the countries of the region, which sometimes perceived it as uh, you know a contender, a sort of a comeback of imperial Ottoman legacy. So I think that brought them together, and it also allowed Israel to reintegrate itself into the diplomatic and political sphere uh, in the Middle East at an official level. Because back in the uh, 70s, 80s, Israel had already made peace deals with like Egypt and Jordan, uh, but those were cold peace deals. There, there were no warm ties of you know, diplomatic, cultural, and uh, economic exchanges. So whereas this, uh, this peace treaty, or uh, let's say establishment of, of a new pact emerges as a warm peace deal, uh, as I mentioned earlier, it gives rise to a fully integrated sphere of influence um, that is apparently forming a bulwark against you know, actors outside the region. And those are possibly uh, you know, Iran, maybe Turkey, maybe Russia. You know, so we'll see uh, as, as, the time go, as time goes by. Um, also on a geopolitical uh, uh, level, uh, hardened those fault lines that existed in the region. So the Israel-Palestinian issue, uh, Syrian issue, Libya, Yemen, all these Lebanon, all these issues uh, have become deeper and harder to resolve actually, because now there are two clear camps. Those, uh, for instance, um, status quo states like the UAE, Saudi and Egypt uh, have been empowered by this deal because uh, you know, they, are, uh, they criticized the Arab Spring and Turkey's involvement in the region and wanted to you know, uh, preserve their privileged status, especially the Gulf monarchs like in the UAE. And so this, uh, this accord enabled them to consolidate their positions in that sense. Let us also not forget that with the change of administration in the U.S., who's uh, Biden, who uh, who um, 
is a fond supporter of liberal internationalism and multilateralism, uh, would like to see diplomatic solutions to problems in the region. In fact, we see more regionalization, localization, and uh, self-sufficiency, an interest to take responsibility for yourself. So that's what we began to saw during the Trump administration that uh, Arab countries increasingly felt insecure and wanted to um, get closer together uh, to uh, protect their interests. But we had the Qatari uh, embargo and that undermined the overall GCC, um, GCC solidarity. Now we see a reversal of that trend. So we see more uh, regionalism and multilateral approach diplomatic approach and soft power gain prominence. But of course the end goal is the same. It is to gain self-sufficiency and greater independence from influence of actors outside the region, be it the US, Russia, Turkey, or Iran. So we see a strengthening of regional ties in other words. Thank you for sharing your opinion in the way. Um, another topic uh, that I would like to learn about your opinion, actually, what is the uh, impact of Abraham Accords on business ties, trade links in the Gulf region? What will be your opinion on this domain? A very timely and important question, Tuche. Thanks for bringing this up. Um, first and foremost, what we saw uh, in the era of COVID-19 is uh, that um, oil dependent states like the UAE, like Saudi, like Qatar, uh, like Kuwait uh, have had to face tight fiscal policies. They had to remove subsidies, impose higher taxes, um, but, but also it opened a, a new avenue for them to diversify their economies, right? So an old book of, uh, you know, procedures have had to necessarily be replaced by a new way of thinking. So they have to think more creatively. And I think that's all, that also kind of paved the way to uh, removal of the embargo um, on Qatar. Uh, coming back to the economics, uh, so we see that uh, Arab states lost 45% of foreign direct investment just in 2020, that's a huge number because remember that countries like the UAE, they thrive on uh, open economy, on liberal values, on investment, on ease of trade, travel, and uh, you know, um, access to goods and services. Um, so the, the, the economic recession affected the travel and tourism sector, but also state revenues that depend on uh, oil incomes and the price of oil has collapsed, even to at some point, you know, negative figures, as you remember from last year, around mid last year. Uh, so that had a detrimental effect on Gulf economies. Um, back before the crisis, they had plans to diversify their economy and prepare for the post oil era. However, I think COVID 19 has accelerated that process. Um, for instance, in the UAE, um, there is the Expo 2020 that was meant to happen last year, but it's been postponed uh, due to um, travel related restrictions to 2021, October. 
And they also have Vision 2071. Like in Turkey, we have Vision 2023 or 2071. They also have 2071 because UAE was founded in 1971. And so 2071 is their centennial anniversary. They have this vision like the Vision 2030 in Saudi Arabia to transform their economy into a more innovative, a climate friendly and a sustainable model that is built on technology uh, and digitalization. So there, Israel brings a lot of value. It has a unique modus vivendi, modus operandi, and a, a clever marketing strategy in order to find suitable ways to roll out its you know, technological solutions, technology solutions. Israel is known as uh, the, the home of you know, startups. So take cybersecurity, for instance, and software exports, um, and healthcare and telecommunications, and also property sector. So the flow of Israeli tourists and investors into the UAE is a case in point. Uh, it brings livelihood to the overall economy. So it, it shows to the rest of the region and the world that you know reconciliation around economic ties can increase prosperity at times of crisis and perhaps even afterwards also. Um, let's also add that like China, uh, Israel does not condition its technology sales upon you know, the client state's adherence to human rights or freedom of expression. Uh, by 2018, uh, Israel's advanced technology exports to the Gulf had already reached 1 billion US dollars. Um, and uh, do you know the NSO group, uh, the, the one that's been under scrutiny uh, for its involvement in different spyware operations, uh, is, a, is a company also which you know, Edward Snowden referred to as the worst of the worst in its invasiveness. So it's a controversial case on the other hand. On one hand, it's development of trade ties and you know, economic uh, prosperity, but also on the other hand, it's got some controversial issues around uh, privacy, respect to data, data protection and privacy. Um, so as a case, for instance, the UAE, UAE purchased NSO spyware to conduct surveillance on people. Um, and on top of what seemed like a popular chat app back then called Totok, a brand name that resembles TikTok in China. Uh, this Totok was in the UAE. It turned out to be uh, like a spy tool to tap on internet conversations. So. Uh, in a hyper-connected world, just to add on to our conversation, in a hyper-connected world, all devices everywhere are actually vulnerable. So you come from a technology background, you're in uh, your own sales business. So you know this now that, you know, uh, in cybersecurity, this notion of an air gap is an, is an illusion, just to illustrate a, a case in point. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, even before uh, the Abraham Accords, for instance, Israel also provided IoT devices and cameras fitted with like AI sensors for uh, Emirate, Emirate wide mass surveillance in Abu Dhabi under the Smart Cities project called named uh, Falconide. So having said that, um, we should also keep in mind that UAE is a, a trade partner of Iran. They have close, strong, uh, historic trade links. Um, and in, in some way, this Abraham Accord in Turkey is perceived to be somewhat not against Iran, but rather against Turkey, especially last year, there were rumors that, you know, 
Arab and Israeli officials, when discussing among themselves in Bahrain, said that you know Turkey is rather the, the bigger of the two threats in the region than Iran. Um, and that's because uh, the perception in, in there is that Turkey pursue, pursues an activist foreign policy um, that is in contradiction in some ways ideologically with Gulf Arab states. And on the flip side of the coin, if you look at Turkish-Israeli relations, uh, the trade volume is like um, $5 billion a year, which is not small at all. You know, it's almost as, as large as the UAE's foreign direct investment, a total uh, FDI stack in Turkey. So in a way, Turkey and Israel complement each other, and they had um, super good relations back in the 90s, which due to different reasons have deteriorated since then. Uh, but still, they they need each other and they have never you know broken up their commercial ties even at uh, you know times of political crisis um as i mentioned uae's fdi in turkey uh, is is large and it's actually more and surprisingly more than qatar's investment in turkey so uh, the uae foreign um, minister anwar gargash said you know they have important interests in turkey and they see it as uh, their major trade partner in the region which is true uh, so they are significant investors. There are common values, common um, interests in the region. And uh, we see you know, what uh, new developments this, uh, these, these Abraham Accords will bring in to the wider region, to the larger uh, region, including Africa as well, uh, as well as Turkey. Yes, we will see that very soon. So uh, I have also another question about Qatar and Turkey relations. Uh, you know, Qatar and Turkey are strategic partners on many fronts, from military to trade, investment and energy. The court of Saudi Arabia, UAE, Bahrain and Egypt had imposed a blockade on Qatar from there and three and a half years with set of 13 demands. Why do they decide to reconcile their differences after a long-standing rift under the Gulf Cooperation Council? And why now? Again, great question, Tuche. And uh, the answer is actually uh, tied to, to some of the points I mentioned earlier. And number one is uh, political challenges. The other is economic challenges. Um, so, you remember back in 2017 when the Quartet imposed demands on Qatar and severe diplomatic ties and all trade and communication and uh, travel links, uh, Qatar did not give up. It did not uh, accept any of those uh, demands and rather, uh, you know, decided to reinvent itself and became a self-sufficient country to a certain extent, of course. You know, it received uh, significant help from Turkey and also from Iran. But um, at that time, um, the US President Trump had uh, an idea in mind, the, the centuries peace deal, which is to bring Arabs and Israelis uh, on a grand bargain uh, to establish peace in these years of uh, conflict uh, between, between the two nations concerning the Palestinian issue, of course. And uh, he saw, uh, I think, an opportunity there when, um, when you know uh, the status quo powers, as I mentioned earlier, Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Egypt uh, were camped against mainly security challenges, uh, the rise of Iran and Turkey. So uh, then they grouped together and um, decided to you know take take a shot basically to try their luck and see if they can 
uh, force Qatar to bow down and meet their demands. Uh, but that did not give exactly the, the you know, the, the, the results, the outcomes that they had expected. And when President Biden got elected, uh, the tides began to turn. So now uh, the issue became, oh, uh, you know, we need to come back together again to um, build goodwill with the incoming administration and lessen the pressure, so to cushion its effects and uh, have a united front against, as I mentioned earlier, in the region from, uh, you know, to, against uh, perceived threats and influences from the outside world. So they decided to come under a new umbrella of the barely, you know, the minimal acceptable uh, ground, let's say. And that turned out to be, again, a security issue. So uh, that's number one. Uh, it's to have a more integrated uh, defense network and to eventually uh, uh, transform this into some kind of a, the, a NATO of the Middle East, together with Israel, of course. So it, it's a win-win situation between them. On the economic side, with the collapse of oil and gas prices, um, we saw energy geopolitics play out in the region, in the, in the East Med, and you know the pipeline links running from the east to west on South Park gas field in, in the Persian Gulf, and also the race to dominate the market, right? So uh, state coffers are fast running out of uh, precious currency, foreign currency reserves. Uh, Saudi Arabia has been, you know, continually burning and drawing on its uh, sovereign wealth fund, and so did other states. So they needed some kind, some way to re-energize their non-oil economy. And one way to do this is to boost their mo morale of their people, and to, uh, with with the lockdowns of the COVID-19, to um, you know, make a surprise and sort of turn this tide around and reintegrate around the common cause of. Um, rebuilding uh, their economies, but in a more integrated way. And also remember that Qatar is to host the World Cup 2022, and it needs material supplies over their land border. And I think in the mid uh, midterm, they may also normalize their relations with Israel. Um, that's kind of uh, the, I think the roadmap that, um, you know, eventually all countries in the region will, will follow. Someday, I think Saudi Arabia will too. Um, so, in terms of U.S. presence in the region, um, that has mixed effects. You know, U.S. is withdrawing from the region politically. Uh, it's still there, but it's tilting its way towards more the Asia-Pacific front, as we all know. It's the pivot that started during the Obama era. But Middle East is still important, and uh, Turkey is a, an emerging powerful regional actor. Uh, the, the main problem I think Turkey has in the region is that it's perceived as a, as a potential hegemon. So the Arabs have this uneasy memory of the Ottoman times and they, they don't want really a, a non-Arab state like Turkey, like Iran or like Russia to take a major role in the region unless it benefits them materially in a significant way, like the US involvement. Um, so, and we see a, an increasing tendency to balance uh, the West with the East. So, uh, you know, China and Southeast Asia emerge as the two greatest markets for uh, Middle East oil and gas. And that will have repercussions in the region. It already does. And China is going to become more and more 
uh, embedded in regions investment uh, landscape we will see in coming years so and that will also have implications on the region um so with that uh, I, I think we, we kind of drew a, a framework around uh, this complex and yet uh, you know interesting intriguing region uh, Toche. Mm -hmm. um if if i may um turn around and ask you a couple of questions would that be okay with you yes sure <laughs> thank you um so let me ask this how does this diplomatic breakthrough in the gulf um, both Abraham Accords and the peace between the Quartet and the Qatar. Uh, how, does they, how do they affect Qatar-Turkey relations from business economic sand, uh, point of view in your uh, mm -hmm. point of view? Uh, thanks for asking this question, Suha. I think it's very important uh, question recently. Uh, the relationship between Qatar and Turkey has been going so strong and active in recent years, as we know. These two countries have been good ally on many topics in the, in the last three years. And today, the areas of collaboration between the two countries span a broad range of sectors and domains. And the trade volume between Qatar and Turkey as of Q3 2020 was $1.4 billion. This is significantly larger than the trade volume between the countries, these two countries, when comparing last years, which is so important indicative of the effect the increased relations and resulting agreements have had on the respective economies of both countries. Well, how will this reconciliation affect the two countries' relation in terms of economy or business? In my opinion, relations between Qatar and Turkey will last as it is, even it will gain strength. The bilateral relations between Qatar and Turkey now rely on an increasingly heavy economic and commercial anchor, and it will likely continue to expand, in my point of view. Although Qatar's relations with Saudi Arabia improves, the relations with uh, United Arab Emirates and uh, Qatar and Egypt, uh, I think will be remain uh, as we seen last years. And Qatar will not necessarily change its foreign policy. Qatari foreign minister also confirmed that last May Qatar will not change its relations with Iran and Turkey after signing this reconciliation agreement with Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Bahrain, and Egypt. It means that the relationship will stay stable, maybe more strength. I believe that the trade volume between Turkey and Qatar will keep uh, and it will be increased in many domains more. And I see that this new development in the Gulf could have a different positive impact, let's say, economic-wise, on Turkey's ties with Saudi Arabia and the UAE, as well as the wider GCC, but of course, depending on the mutual willingness, we will see that. In my opinion, one of the countries that has the most to gain from this saudi Qatar reconciliation will be Turkey, and uh, I don't see any threat uh, about Turkey and Qatar relations in near future. They will keep and they will even they will increase their trade volume uh, 
in upcoming years, as you mentioned, there will be World Cup, there will be uh, some national uh, vision. Actually, there is national visions of Qatar and other countries. We, are, we know that. That's why Qatar uh, will ask more help from Turkey, in my opinion. Excellent, Tuche. Thank you for this uh, overview. And I can't agree with you more um, than, you know, saying Turkey and Qatar are two important strategic partners. They have uh, a, a strategic framework agreement between the two governments. As well. yeah. And that's going mm -hmm. to go further. You know, I've been following the news and uh, when, you, when asked about comparing between Turkey and Iran, for instance, Qatar mm -hmm. single-handedly just referred to Turkey as their strategic partner in the region, which the partner that is, you know, it, which is an, really an important uh, point for Turkey to take. It's all sure. better to, to see this relationship develop and a positive uh, side effect of, you know, the Abraham Accords and uh, the, uh, the, the peace deal between the Quartet and Qatar, of course, hopefully will be a strengthening of ties between Qatar and Turkey and uh, and hopefully spread this, you know, sense, this positive atmosphere in the region uh, even more. So that brings me uh, to another question, uh, mm -hmm. So you have a lot of experience in the region. You have traveled around and you've been to Qatar many times, uh, you know, yeah. the East and Africa. Um, what opportunities and threats uh, in your view are there are to te Turkish technology firms uh, high mm -hmm. technology firms and exporters like Coach System uh, mm -hmm. in this new Middle East um, uh, Middle Eastern configuration, is this an easier or is it a harder environment to navigate for you? Mm -hmm. Thank you for asking this question too, Suha. Uh, actually, Turkish construction companies leave their mark on important construction projects in Gulf countries, especially in Qatar till now. <clears throat> However, I do not see enough penetration of Turkish technology companies in Middle East, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of Turkish IT companies which are trying to grow their business in here. I know that. But the existence of IT companies based in the US, Europe, and India are playing much more important role in the Middle East right now. And it's very sad for Turkish companies, of course. It's obvious that the Turkish IT firms started and tried to grow their business in Qatar, especially after Gulf crisis in 2017. Because Qatar also opened its door to all IT companies like us uh, from Turkey. But I see that it didn't reach to the level what expected or aimed by officials, not like construction companies, let's say. Despite of the fact that the Turkish relations with Saudi Arabia, UAE, Bahrain, and Egypt have not been in good situation for many years, after Gulf crisis especially, not many IT projects driven by Turkish companies have been taking place in those countries. This was a really negative effect or impact, let's say, of tense relations of Turkey with these countries. However, I believe that by this new Middle East and this reconciliation, I think 
much easier environment will be expecting Turkish IT companies. I do not believe that we will face with many challenges like we have seen in last months, in last years, such as embargo enforcement by Saudi Arabia and so on. In my opinion, the things will be smoother for all Turkish firms that want to grow their business in Middle East. Additionally, as I mentioned, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and uh, Bahrain, uh, these countries have national visions for 2030. There will be lots of projects and investments which will be taking place in the region. Some already started, as I experienced. If Turkish IT firms can accommodate themselves in the right position and behave strategically with local parties of these countries, or alone, let's say. There will be a huge potential in the region and these diplomatic changes will raise many opportunities to, for Turkish IT firms. I think Turkish IT companies should create a decent roadmap to make much more business in the GCC. However, I know that I heard something uh, recently. Someone thinks that there might be a threat for Turkey economically since Qatar had a possibility to change its direction mm -hmm. and start to develop new alliances, alliances with UAE, Saudi and others. They, uh, they are thinking that Qatar can be close to these countries after this reconciliation. But I don't see this as a concrete threat for Turkey since Qatar will keep making business with strategic partners from Turkey because they, this kind of uh, partnership agreements, let's say, already done and they will keep going. Uh, on top of it, there will be many alliances which will be waiting for all Turkish companies in the region, not only in Qatar, as I mentioned. And I, I, th I, th I think IT companies will have much possibility to make business than before in the region. This is my opinion. Great insights, Tuche. Uh, much, much appreciated. Thank you uh, for uh, your in-depth views on uh, the matter of Turkish-Qatari relations and uh, business mm -hmm. going in the Middle East. So um, I've spent a few years in there uh, in, based in Dubai, and I can say that, you know, I, I do agree with what you what you just said. And for instance, this <laughs> this Expo 2020 that the UAE uh, is meant to host, unfortunately, there were no Turkish companies attending due to the diplomatic strife between the two nations. But Israeli companies uh, had large presence. They you knew recently Israel opened an, uh, an embassy and uh, delegations one after another from finance, technology, telecom, and healthcare sectors have visited uh, the UAE and they will be there at the expo. So, but as you said, this um, uh, breakdown of barriers and kind of rapprochement between former, uh, let's say, foes, quote unquote, is a positive development. Uh, it will pave the way to, uh, I think, some form of a reconciliation and maybe a grand bargain. Um, mm -hmm. involving Israel and other countries in Asia. And of course, companies from, uh, you know, Turkish technology firms that are export-oriented, like Kortsystem, are set to benefit mm -hmm. from this new vision, this new atmosphere. I sincerely wish you and your colleagues all the best uh, in this, in this new environment. Yeah, most welcome. Most welcome.
And uh, let me tie up our conversation with a final few words maybe on um, how Biden administration stands towards the Middle East uh, with mm -hmm. our, you know, Turkish-US relations for the next four years. Uh, in my frank view, uh, Tuja, I think this will be more of a transactional relationship uh, as we see due to um, some of the more um, uh, intricate problems, some uh, outstanding uh, deep-rooted issues between, you know, as we experience, uh, we all follow from media um, between the two governments uh, around main security partnership but also uh, some regional strife of strife on the geopolitics. Um, so there is this view that Turkey may, might move closer to Russia slash Eurasian world, but I, I think that it will also keep a balanced approach and maintain or, or try to maintain st strong relations with the, with the Euro Atlantic Western Alliance. And we can see that in foreign minister, uh, maybe Cavusoglu's recent visit to Brussels and firm commitment uh, and Turkey's anchor towards the goal of becoming a full member to the European Union. Uh, and we'll have, you know, in February, uh, an important NATO summit in Brussels, which Biden will participate. Uh, Turkey's President Erdogan uh, is planning to be there, maybe on a one-to-one on a, on a -one meeting if conditions uh, are right. And then in March, there is uh, an important EU summit as well. Um, taking into regard Turkey's ongoing relations with its neighbors and all, mainly the Eastern Mediterranean quagmire. Um, but these are important stepping stones, I think, in uh, refining Turkey's position in the region. We'll see much more diplomatic engagement and uh, efforts to reconcile different views and traditions, uh, different positions in the region than during the Trump era. So I'm still positive in that respect. Um, with that, uh, if, if I may, we will wrap up our conversation to it was it was really, really great to have you uh, as our, you know, uh, first um, speaker this on this podcast podcast series. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. So thanks uh, for uh, sharing all the information of you. Uh, it was a very fruitful uh, broadcast for me. Uh, thank you very much. Most welcome to you. Hope to hear you from you again. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you very much. Bye.